no sense in skinning a red That's right, no sense in skinning yeah, but, 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 but I think it was poke a pig. Don't poke the bear. Don't poke the bear. I lived in the yeah. city. Well, when I read it, I very close to St. Rose. Because I was so poke the bear. I'm in the Buddhist frame of the car. And that whole thing is just scary. I just thought we are a few moments behind schedule and I hope we can catch up a little bit here. Our next item on the agenda is the consent agenda, and there are two items. Uh, the approval of the minutes from November 30th. I move approval. Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right, now uh, let's look at the approval of the policies and procedures. Uh, so there are several listed here. I'm sure everybody read them <laughs> and knows them by heart. Uh, they make good reading sometimes if we are struggling. I move approval. <laughs> thank you. All those in favor? Aye. All right. Thank you. That means all of the consent agenda has passed. Um, we have now an opportunity for the medical staff reports. Again, I'd like to begin with uh, Dr. Bullard, please. There are several areas of focus. Uh, the clinical areas are sepsis, total joint order sets, and stroke um, clinical applications. The other more documentation-related topics are medication reconciliation and the high-risk and high-volume order sets. Uh, the report said that the order sets and the medical Medication reconciliation is moving along nicely, and we're, we're in line to be ready for when our EMR is up and running, they should be ready to go. Second, we had a report from the Clinical Practice Council, and um, they outlined their new charter and the meeting schedule. We're going to try to meet hopefully twice a month and get a great deal of work done. Our overall goal is to um, really have a system-wide approach to evaluating policies and procedures so that we have a consistent and evidence-based approach to the care we offer. Next, the um, system-wide pharmacy and therapeutics committee was um, presented. They, too, kind of mirror what the CPC is doing for other general policies, and they focus more on the medication-related policies and therapeutics. They also are multidisciplinary and now across the entire system, so we're hoping that evidence-based practices can be consistent across all three hospitals. Mm -hmm. The um, department chair search, uh, as you know, we've been an ongoing church for search for psychiatry, OBGYN, and surgery. Um, I think they were closest to finding a solution to the surgery chair, and the other two are ongoing. With the voting in of the new bylaws, we created two new departments, orthopedics and pediatrics. At this point, we have interim chairs that will serve those departments probably for the next year and a half to two years until we can get a formal search up and going for long-term chairs of those committees. 
um, bylaws, as I mentioned, have been passed and are available for your perusal now. The IRB uh, presented, uh, I think it's a once a year presentation we get from them, and their main focus at this point in time is the challenges that they seem to have maintaining a quorum. Because of the busy nature of all the different clinicians on the committee, it's hard to get enough people to, to talk about the studies. The other key point that I think was brought up was that there are some industry-sponsored studies that donate funds to help with the administrative processing, and it's not clear we don't have a process right now for tracking how those funds actually go through the system and then our ability to be allocated by the committee to be used. So they, they really need to, to come up with a process to keep up with those funds, basically. And they're working on that. Next, the Wellness Task Force was presented by Dr. Hearn, who's the chair of that committee. I think for 2018, there's uh, three main um, focuses that we have as priorities. And I say we because I'm on most of these committees. <laughs> um, but the overall our overarching focuses we have are to increase the efficiency of our practices so that it, it reduces stress for all the clinicians and staff, um, to actually create a culture of, of wellness so that it's part of our daily and weekly discussions and kind of mindset to maintain wellness across staff, um, and also just different skill sets on developing our own, our own personal resilience because this work can be so challenging at times. In that, in that vein, we've come up with some ideas on how to maintain and actually get these, these focuses out and kind of being practiced, one of which is that we want to um, start developing different programs, whether it's seminars or um, events surrounding some of these topics so that so we can start the conversation. As I said last time I was here, we wanted to start that conversation as a, as a regular part of our, our work week. We also have recognized that our access to counseling, both for um, crisis intervention and, and for more ongoing resources for counseling, is not what we want it to be. And so we're, we're trying to access funding for at least one FTE so that we can have a counselor available for staff and residents and, and all the different members of the caregiver team. Um, I can speak personally in that idea with a, a great number of trauma events where if we had that, it would be tremendously helpful for everyone involved. Hmm. Next, we kind of covered the, the surge process, and I, I kind of disconnect the surge and disaster process because it's two different things in reality, and the surge program is when we're trying to really minimize the amount of time that the emergency department is over, is over full. And, um, because it's flu season, we've had a record number of red surges this month. I think the the over, I think the the discussion surrounded not only the fact that there've been a great number of them, and kind of the details of how they were handled over the past 30 days, but also if we can start coming up with a process for prevention versus just crisis intervention, that that would be helpful. And apparently other hospitals do have sort of um, a plan in place for times that they know that patient influx is going to be increased, like flu season or like high incidences of trauma during certain parts of the year. 
So we want to start that conversation next to how we prevent and not just react. Um, the new chair of anesthesia is Dr. Newmark, and he presented an amazing uh, update on what his department's doing. He basically is just completely overhauling the entire anesthesia department. Uh, there's a major transformation happening. He's focusing at least initially on uh, quality improvement projects around chronic pain management, um, maintaining uh, the trauma airway protocol and updating it so it's consistent across all departments because each department does things a little differently right now. He wants to survey his attendees and kind of come up with a knowledge and an understanding of what their thoughts are on the culture of safety and then start to educate and make you know make that a part of their daily work. And he also has come up with a um, preoperative process that he's quoting the term passport to the operating room. And basically it's an, it's, it's a, an entire packet of how um, we can help patients get prepped and get um, advocated for in a really unworthy system that exists right now so that they can be ready, be safely prepped, and get their operation, and then all what they need afterwards um, in, a, in a very caring fashion. So he's just doing amazing work. Last but not least, um, we talked about how there are so many different entities that constitute our medical staff, and how we all really at the, our, our basic intention as we serve here is to try to come up with a way that we can be a more homogenous group. And, we're sort of in the embryonic stages of those discussions, but it was really refreshing to know that when we started having the conversation, everybody wants it. We just haven't got the details on how to get there yet. I think that's it. Um, I do have a question about the IRB committee uh, approving 32 new studies. Could you help us understand, are these 32 studies being done in conjunction with UCSF, or is it with... Uh, well, internal research? It's interesting. It's across the board. I mean, I think um, if you look at the different the different periods, and I think we meet every two months. I'm also on that committee. Um, we, talk, we have um, clinical review studies, chart review studies. I would say a small portion of them are in conjunction with other institutions. There's a larger chunk of them that are industry-sponsored. And many of those industry-sponsored are through the infectious disease and HIV clinics. Um, I would say probably at least 60% or 65% of them, because we have an emergency medicine residency, a surgery residency, and a medicine residency, many of them are faculty and residents doing academic work to maintain their and to further their professional status. Okay. Question? Yes. Uh, on the, um, the, the, the one FTE on-site counseling, would that be just for Highland, for the core? Or have, is this, would this be someone that could work with, you know, throughout the system? Since we're addressing the wellness issue as a system issue, we would love it if it could be something accessible to all three campuses. My gut feeling is if we were to, to expand it, it would be more than one FTE. Yeah, that, that was that was my thinking. Was, <laughs> uh, we were at the, many of us attended the the annual meeting up at um, the Greek Orthodox Temple, and that amazing presentation on mm -hmm. on provider wellness and burnout was, was delivered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so, I, yeah, I noticed that the in the presentation he he called out the fact that we were there, and he reminded the providers to to reminded us to listen when you talk about what your needs are. And so if this is one of them, 
you know, I want to see that it, we're looking at it system-wide, not just at the core, for example, and, and if there's an action we need to take or if something needs to be brought forward to us to, mm -hmm. to approve the FDEs to do that, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're, I, I think we all heard it, so our ears are open. Right, I, I think our, our conversation evolved from, yes, we need an entire workforce of people to do this, to let's see if we can get one, and then when that person says, I am, I am getting four million calls and we can document the need, then we can come with real data and say, this is a, this is a significant thing we need to fund. And, and it, but can we document the outcomes as well? Like, I, I, I know that there's ways to track it, but I, I don't know what those are. Right. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I would like to see that. We would definitely like to show that to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have another question. Talk a little bit about the process for hiring your your department heads. You know, um, you mentioned that you're going to have a temporary, I think, pediatrics for a year and a half to two years. That that doesn't seem temporary to me. Um, so, what seems to be the difficulty in it, they're just not out there? Um, why does it take so long to get a department head? I'm, I'm going to answer this in, from a standpoint of being a surgeon in a department where we're looking for a chair. In our department specifically, there are details such as the fact that we work with UCSF and there's, a, there's two different uh, search committees and so there's an entire process that's involved at two different levels. The other search committees I know have found some candidates and even offered positions to some candidates and still haven't gotten a consensus with a candidate that wanted to, in the end, be here. And I think they've reopened the psych search at least once, if not twice. Um, so, you know, it's different answers to that question depending on which department you're talking about. With the pediatrics and orthopedics, I'd have to just, I'd have to ask Dr. Jamali where the one and a half year to year wait is. Uh, and those, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, the people who are in a temporary position would not necessarily be qualified to take to take the. I don't. I don't know if that's the case. Okay. You know, since they're brand new departments, my guess is that there's going to be a little bit of growing pains and sort of evolution within the department itself, and maybe that's part of why I we see. need to wait a little while. I see. But you know. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, so two, two questions here is the process of the chair appointment, which is uh, incumbent or uh, vacate chair. It's a process which is very well uh, outlined in the bylaws of the medical staff. So there is a committee which is uh, chaired by one person and has members. Uh, the chair is appointed by the chief of staff in, in discussion with myself and Del Vecchio. And, uh, and then they, they go through a search process. Uh, so uh, we have been able to fill the uh, anesthesia. Uh, we have found challenges uh, in filling the behavioral health psychiatry. Uh, and uh, we have had an interim person who stepped uh, up and then decided to, to leave and not to apply for the position. So we have a new interim person, and that's why uh, we are going with negotiation with UAPD contract on, on behavioral health, and we have a TBH contract 
plus we have had a number you know of issues that we are trying to do with the ligature risk so we decided to just for now hold the search you know to stabilize thing and then resume the search afterwards because we have extended an offer to a candidate about two months ago and uh, you know after uh, you know a lot of he decided not to move from Oregon for personal reason mm -hmm. and we didn't reach an agreement so that's in, in psychiatry. In uh, OBGYN, we had a good search and we had a candidate who also is from LA and she came here two times and then she ended up declining the search. So we are reopening that search. Uh, with the new departments that were voted uh, last uh, medical staff, question is really the why. Why do we have a new department? And uh, what has happened is that the Department of Surgery has, has, uh, has grown big and orthopedic service has really increased. So the chair of surgery had orthopedic under them and under orthopedics there is also now rehab and podiatry so it is really non-manageable. So that's really the why. The question is when will we appoint a chair? We really need to look at this from a budgetary standpoint like we need to see what budget and need to backfill if we have orthopedic lines and then try to structure the uh, administrative time of the chair and the clinical time uh, accordingly. So we have to really look at it from a budgetary standpoint. The same thing, so it is to help the surgery and to help also the orthopedic service from a uh, medical staff governance standpoint. Uh, the same thing goes for maternal child. Uh, pediatrics has grown and OBGYN demands have increased, so pediatrics, we needed to have different governance. And uh, again, we decided to, uh, uh, by the bylaws, it's not an appointment, it's really a search for the chair, so we decided to give some time for the new chair to stabilize the department and to have time to have a search at the later stage. I so see. that's a thinking process. Thank you. Um, on uh, the issue of surge, not search, <laughs> on the surge, um, and Kelly, you might uh, need some help from the administrators. Where do we sit in terms of other historic periods with regard to the number of code internal triages? Qualitatively, it feels like this has been more this season, but using an other historical context, where are we? Are we truly far much more uh, than we have before? Are we a standard deviation different? And then uh, I think John will probably be answering it because I know he's here for 21 days straight. Um, and then to Kelly, wh what, what barriers do you see to, to improvement of this kind of untenable position uh, that, 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 could, that, this, that this body could help you with? So I guess maybe John can help out with the, the quant of what this problem is. Sure. Um, let's just talk about the, am I on? Maybe uh, not. Yeah. No. I'll talk loud. Yeah. Uh, over the last two months, uh, we've been admitting up to 30 new admits a day during the flu season, mm -hmm. as opposed before the flu season when it was about 17. Mm -hmm. We were already at 94% occupancy mm -hmm. before the flu season. Mm -hmm. uh, to Dr. Bullard's point, are there things that we could do preventatively? Sure. A surge is just not borders. It's amount of patients awaiting to get into the ED. Mm -hmm. So some of the tactics that we're discussing further is how do we leverage the same-day clinic without violating EMTALA laws? Mm -hmm. Can patients self-refer there if we have signs saying, if you have these symptoms, you have the option 
to go to the same day clinic. Mm -hmm. Dr. Babaria and Dr. Simon are leading that effort. Mm -hmm. In-house, sure, we still have uh, a ways to go be before we're efficient in discharging. Mm -hmm. Most private hospitals, and we'd love to uh, mimic them, have uh, discharges by 11 a.m. We're improving, but it's still around 3 p.m. The second point to that is we have very uh, high difficulty in, uh, in placing uh, patients who need skilled nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. We still average over 15 to 16 beds uh, per day that don't need to be here. Mm -hmm. And if you think of our floors, we have two med surge floors. Mm -hmm. That's two-thirds of one floor. So finding a solution to those types of problems is where we need to advance to. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, so uh, def definitely uh, a, a little more hard on the metrics. So let's call this two-month period. How many code internal triages have we had over this two-month period versus historic uh, 15, 16, or 16, 17? <laughs> uh, well, we didn't have, honestly, and uh, I wasn't here in 15, but last year before we had a, uh, a surge, I, I can't. Okay. I can't tell you what a surge was, okay. but when we started the, uh, the official surge program during the first two months, I think we had three surge reds. Okay. Over the last two months, 70% of our days have been surge reds. Right. So this last week here, we've been placated. Yeah. We've only had one in the last five days. Okay. Tracy? Um, will, it, will the opening of the acute rehab at San Leandro improve the ability to transfer some of the less acute uh, patients that are taking up Richard could always chime in with me, but what I see as the biggest issue is skilled nursing facility mm -hmm. placements. Oh. Now, if our strategic plan is to build more in AHS, okay, sure, that would help. Um, uh, but until then, uh, we're, we're, we're stuck with competing with other hospitals trying to get patients into skilled nursing facilities. Okay, I want to put extent. So, so I would just chime in and say, I don't know if I'm on, but um, the acute rehab is growing at census, and in January it will be our highest census that it's been in several years. Um, so when we move to San Leandro, the goal is to keep it going at the census at about 28, and so I think this number will run about 21.5. Um, in terms of skilled nursing facilities, our, our facilities are helping case management in terms of placement. Um, but our buildings run, uh, subacute normally runs 100% full, South Shore is 100% full today, Fairmont's 107 out of 109 beds with one bed that has to be clinically specific for the admit. Um, and Park Bridge, um, which I'll share later, had a influenza outbreak, and so they weren't allowed to admit for several days. Um, but they also collaborate with all the other internal buildings, not only Highland, but Alameda, um, for referrals. And so we are working desperately with case management, but we also run at an occupancy rate about 98, 96%. And so. Demand consistent for the skilled nursing beds, or do you see that also? Uh, it's pretty consistent. All right. Are there any opportunities to acquire additional skilled nursing beds in the market, or is uh, it just a build decision? Say again. Or is it just a decision to build? I think it's something that we've uh, we've talked about and we've explored, and I think it um, could warrant some more discussion. 
All right, let's proceed to our next medical staff report from San Leandro and Dr. Chu. Yeah, very uh, similarly, we uh, <coughs> discussed the, uh, the CPC uh, charter uh, in uh, the, uh, some of uh, our medical MEC uh, members was uh, concerned whether or not the uh, system-wide uh, CPC will be uh, sufficient to uh, address our local concern in uh, the <coughs> accounting for variability uh, in the patient population and our uh, practice environment. And uh, uh, we did approve the CPC charter and, uh, as well as the uh, system-wide PNT uh, uh, charter. And those, uh, we will be uh, appointing or uh, electing or uh, assigning a uh, uh, representative to uh, the uh, CPC and PNT uh, uh, committee. And, um, and the other uh, uh, major uh, um, presentation that happened at the uh, MEC meeting was the uh, some physician, uh, they came in and they give us a, a presentation and their uh, strategic plan, how they're going to uh, handle the transition and how they're going to staff the ED and, uh, and also how they're going, going to proceed as far as uh, the quality and the uh, QA process. And uh, so that's an ongoing project and uh, so we'll see uh, how it uh, pans out in the next few weeks. Any questions? Any question for that? I have a question. Uh, thank you for the report. So uh, uh, back to the CPC charter, you uh, you led off by saying you had some concerns, but yet you approved it. Just giving voice, do, are, do these concerns need to be brought forth here, or will they resolve an issue that led to uh, a positive and approval for it? Anything that needs to be brought forth to this, to this body? Well, uh, still, uh, the charter uh, itself is pretty broad and it encompasses uh, most of the concern. Uh, the, I guess, uh, like everything, you really don't know how it's going to work out until uh, the actual implementation uh, that happens. So there, right now there's just some hypothetical concern in a way that you know, what happened if this and what happened if that, what if the antibiotic ram for Thailand is substantially different from San Leandro. Or is it going to be branched in the order sense that will address concern? So uh, I think we have enough assurance uh, from the uh, administration and also the charter itself is bright enough. I think we can make our voice heard. But again, uh, we really don't know uh, uh, the actuality or how it's going to work out until uh, the uh, implementation of the order set and the EHR and the committee. So, and until uh, we have our representative uh, reported back to us, say yes, uh, the, my concern were heard, or no, I was just, my concern wasn't heard. So that's uh, something that we are cognizant uh, of. But ultimately, I think the MEC has the final kind of Sale stamp approval, so we were sure by that. Faith and trust. <laughs> All right. Anyone else have a question? All right. Let's go to the next Alameda Hospital medical staff report with Dr. Uh, 
the um, report for Alameda uh, Hospital Medical Staff. Um, also um, involves the two charters uh, represented, um, the Clinical Practice Council Charter and the System Pharmacy and Therapeutics Charter. Um, we have um, engaged with um, uh, leadership at HS about the concerns that we have with the charters and after several discussions, there are some revisions which uh, the uh, medical staff at Alameda um, approved both uh, CPC and System PNT charters um, after our concerns were addressed. Um, and um, it, it, again, with what uh, Dr. Uh, Chu mentioned, it, it involves with um, being able to uh, provide, uh, you know, specific um, local policies that only affects the, the campus. And, and so um, after, you know, with that approval, you know, the, we resolved that, you know, the MEC Alameda still serves in itself the responsibility and authority to adopt and approve clinical care policies that are specific and applicable to Alameda Hospital. Uh, and with discussion with um, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin, I think it was, um, you know, we are in, in agreement that, you know, these, these are for standardizations and that if there's any local um, issues that are specific to Alameda, these would be addressed, you know, uh, accordingly uh, through the CPC. All right. Any questions, comments? All right. Uh, I was wondering about the chart in, in the report. Oh, right, about the scores, about yeah. Alameda Hospital. Um, Is that page 106? Yeah. Alameda Hospital has reached some milestone in terms of uh, um, how. That was uh, my intention for the board of the general meeting. Oh, oh okay. I'm going to save it for that. We can mention it. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Green is good. Yeah. Yes. I like green. Yeah. Yeah, green <laughs> is good. Um, given that we're a little bit behind schedule, could we wait yeah, for the board meeting? That would be wise. Uh, because the next, uh, now do we need to uh, approve these reports? No. no, okay, we're okay with that. All right, so the next item on the agenda, and I just want to call out that it was set for about an hour's worth of time. Um, we are a little bit behind, but we do have a report on the quality metrics. And before Dr. Uh, Jamaluddin, you begin, would you mind introducing our yes, newest uh, I just want to team. introduce uh, to the board the first meeting, Dr. Tanvir Hussein, who joined us uh, about a month ago, right now, maybe five weeks ago. Uh, he came to us from Nebraska Health. We have distributed his CV that I can't recall all his achievements <laughs> before, but we are able to bring him on board. So welcome, Tanvir. If you have a few words to say, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thank you for including. I know where uh, there's been a lot of discussion, so I won't keep you long. Just wanted to say hi. Thank you. I look forward to working with you on a monthly basis. Very excited by um, the real commitment um, that I've seen. Um, for me, I think what um, motivates the changes we need to make or the evolutions we need to invest in to transform the system are really found at the bedside and they're escalated all the way to the board. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this meeting is the potential and possibility to do that, to bring those stories and to say this is how we've 
followed. Sometimes um, we have conversations about errors that occur, um, but we learn from them. It's like putting in, you know, the the diesel pump that doesn't go into our unleaded tanks. We will make errors, but we need to create the systems to ensure that error doesn't hit the patient or doesn't leave our doors. So I'm very excited by the peer uh, peer review process changes, excited about the commitment to the Clinical Practice Council. And um, I'd say there are two large areas that I think my team is excited by, and I've heard a lot of um, echoing and resonance from the, the staff. Um, one is about um, using data-driven insights and evidence-based standards to really guide the work we do, getting agreement on that first, and then saying we are committed and we will monitor how well we adhere to these core processes. So one is getting everybody to agree, come to agreement that this is the right thing to do, and then saying we care enough to make sure we do that. And the second um, is uh, to really think about how we become a learning health system. It's, it's the story of the errors that will occur but when our culture is just, it's our preoccupation with failure, not because we're blaming, but, but because we can't allow it to happen again. Yeah, so I'm just gonna leave you with those two broad ideas. Thank you for welcoming me and allowing me to be here today, and I look forward to chatting with you more. Thank you so Thank very you. much, Dr. Hussein, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I do wanna share, I heard a wonderful quote from a sociologist, uh, Brene Brown, and she said that stories are data with soul. Yeah. And we need to think about that often as we work through what you're about to uh, embark upon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. Dr. Jamaluddin, please take it away. So we are going to present, I think, the first uh, uh, report. Is it uh, Behavioral Health? We're starting? It can be. We have two reports. Sorry. So we have uh, Mr. Espinosa is going to present post acute first, and we'll go with behavioral. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Richard Espinosa, the CEO for Post Acute Services. Um, my first slide deck is covering the dashboard. Uh, the things I do want to point out is the outpatient wait list. We have been working very hard as a team um, through therapy, through, through standardized work in our physician offices for referrals, standardized work in our scheduling departments, and growing our uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy services in terms of days and uh, weekends. We have been successful, as you see. Uh, we've brought it down from a baseline of 2,548 down to, in December, 1138. Our target was 2,293. So we've done better than we had hoped, and we're continuing to continue that. Um, and the bigger thing, the big impact also is that we brought down the, uh, the average days on the wait list from a baseline of 104 to a goal of 93.6 to 52 days. Oh, that's and good. so um, there's been a lot of hard work uh, from the teams on this. We've been collaborating with the outpatient services at Highland and Fairmont uh, and Alameda. Uh, and as, would, as you would see with that, our number of uh, PT and OT patients uh, of volume in November surpassed the budget. And so that means 
we raised the budget in anticipation of seeing more uh, patients, and so we are finally seeing that we are meeting those expectations. It's been some growth and some uh, opportunities that we worked on, but we're starting to see the benefits of the efforts that we've done. I'll move on since we have others. Uh, this, again, just looks at the outpatient therapy wait list and some of the things that we spoke about, same-day referral process implementation, um, extending our rehab service hours. We've looked at uh, a lot of the referrals that were on the books that were uh, there for quite some time and reaching out to the fam families and patients and asking, do you need to come in? Would you like to come in? And making sure that we're getting them in or if they no longer need to be seen, that we remove them from the list. Mm -hmm. uh, and then lastly, really, the, and to implement the standard work um, across the different areas, from the physician referral offices to make sure that the docs are referring and that uh, the referral, we've done some adjustments to the referral list so that the information that we're, we're getting um, has everything that we need so we don't need to send it back and then add additional days that people are waiting before they can come in to um, the referral process and then to the scheduling process. And so uh, with a lot of work with Sylvia Lozano's group and transformation, we've been standardizing some work. We still have a heavy lift ahead of us to keep going, um, but there has been a great deal of work that has happened thus far. Can, can you explain this chart? I, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying sounds good, but like... I I don't understand it. <laughs> the chart, so yeah. the blue line is the actual data. The red line is the target. We sure. <laughs> actual data of what? I'm no, not... Number of patients waiting? For yes. Them. So oh, the 2548 with the um, outpatient therapy wait list for OTPT and speech. It was those patients that are waiting. So when we identify this as an opportunity for us, that was the number that we calculated were waiting. As we started implementing processes and, and calling and trying to work the lists that have been there and looking at scheduling and standardizing work, we started to see reductions. We did see a jump in October, which was uh, some 2016 referrals that were not captured, and so that jumped uh, the number back up, and so they were missed on the Highland campus, and so we worked those as well, as well as the current referrals that we were doing, which started to bring it back down. So that jump um, is because of the, of the 2016 referrals that were missed on the Highland campus that we recaptured and then worked. How long are they waiting for an appointment? These are the people that are on the list waiting for their first visit? Correct. And so when we first started, they were waiting 104 days, and now we have it down to 52 days on the snapshot of when we looked at it. So. If I could, just so when you got it, sorry, when you got it down to eight sixteen, like eight six oh, in September, in September you got it down to eight hundred sixteen. That was uh, the the cleanup, if you will, includes people that both got the referral or people that dropped off. You talked about people, like they didn't want it anymore. I just want to know. How so everyone that was on the twenty five forty eight list included some that were 2016, 2017. We uh, looked at the list and went through all of them and made sure that we were still making a, a referral call to make sure if they needed to come in. We didn't want to just delete something. We wanted to say, do you need to be seen and, and to be seen? So we've called every single person that was on that 2548. We either got them in or they said they had had rehab somewhere else so that they no longer needed to have therapies. And so then that referral goes away. And I hate to ask, but what percentage 
came in versus went somewhere else? I would have to get that data for you. I mean, that would be interesting, because mm -hmm. in terms of our volume. But I would also say, based on the other metrics, the patient PT and OT volumes that we added, and now that we're meeting is demonstrating that the volumes are growing, which means we are seeing more people coming in versus what we had seen in, in the past. And that's not lost on me, even though I didn't understand the chart. I understand. So good, good work, even though that's <laughs> Sure, and that's why I'm here to try to answer your questions. <laughs> the concern, uh, I think, which the trustee raised this concern earlier, is if I'm a patient, I have to wait 50 days to get OPPT. What does it mean, you know, in the real story, you know, rather than the data? And that sets a concern, you know. Right. Um, I mean, we are setting up targets for ourselves in terms of number, but what does it translate in terms of a patient who's either operated or even the hospital who needs OTPT? Because that's, that's a concern. And I know that you have been working on demand and capacity and trying to see how we can fix this. What happened also is that our um, our volume from orthopedics has, has increased, you know, and uh, somehow we didn't match it with an increase in capacity in OTPT. So that's that's part of it. Uh, hopefully we we'll get there. We want patients to get their treatment when they need them. You know, Correct. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the goal. And we've also done a rehab assessment of the system. So as all these facilities have joined, they have their own practices, and so we're trying to standardize. We did an assessment to see where we are, how we standardize further for therapies, and so we're working on that as well. I still don't understand what this, but what does, what is, what is the 1138 that represent? Is, that is the current amount of uh, patients that are on the wait list for physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and audiology combined. Okay, and that group of people will wait about 50 plus days to get in. At this, at this point in time. A and all 1138 will wait that long or so it's a snapshot we're, we're doing a snapshot in time and so what we've done now is that as the referrals come in we've done a change in our scheduling department at fairmont so that they're doing same day referrals so if the referral comes in today they're calling the patient today to try to get them in some of the referrals do come to us and say that uh, from the physician they need to wait two weeks before they can actually be seen. So it's not necessarily that the referral comes in and says that the, the patient needs to have PT tomorrow. Sometimes the, because of the These 1138 are not processed yet. They're just on a list waiting to be processed. It either get service, to contact a doctor, have the doctor tell them to wait. Is, is that what They're I... They're currently is that what this on means? the list and have been contacted and are waiting to get in. They have been contacted. Yes. And they so some of them have responded and said we are coming in, and some were waiting for response back. Do we have a metric which is actually a referral to care? I think it's, um, I believe that this is within the symphony system. It's an, I believe this is from the symphony system, and it's a referral made internally from AHS to one of the rehab um, services that uh, Richard um, identified, PTOT. So 1138 patients, I believe, um, have been referred to a service, and they're awaiting a scheduled appointment. So a referral has been made internally at AHS, and they're awaiting a scheduled appointment. Okay. And, and so, just out of curiosity, how far back does this data go? I mean, do you have data to show the fluctuations 
or, or are we also seeing something here that might be just demographic? As people age, some of those who need the kind of therapies that you're providing are going to increase. And so I'm just curious if we can just hear from you. Are you surprised by these numbers or? Well, so I think this was identified as an issue um, yeah. and, and uh, important for us in 2017. And so. Yeah. It was an area that came up, we looked at it and said it does need attention, so I was surprised by the numbers originally, and that's why we said it was going to be a system metric and okay. uh, we were going to uh, have resources applied to it so that we can bring it down. Okay. And so that's why it's a, a focus. Okay. Thank you. Can I just ask a question on the, uh, on the 52 and then this 1138? So you've got uh, 52 days to a first appointment. So in the 1138, do you have a mix of those that are just referred? and have not scheduled appointment and those that also have scheduled appointments? It's a mix of that, and it's also a mix of when a referral comes to us, the referral may say the patient needs to wait two or three weeks before they're actually supposed to be seen. So we may call them, but because the physician may have said we have to wait a few weeks before they're eligible to do therapy, that will sway some of those numbers as well because we have no control of saying they need to come in tomorrow if the, if the referral says to wait two weeks before they come in. We can make the appointment at that time, but that doesn't change the amount of time that needs to wait before they can be seen. And um, Richard, could you just say a few words about the 2293? Why, why is that? We looked at the number and we thought we could reduce it by a certain percentage, and that was the percentage we were targeting to reduce oh, okay. it by, and having not done this work in the system before and applying our um, the action plan, we weren't sure where we were going to land, and so that's where the 2293. Oh, the 2293 relates to the 2548. Yes. So they've beaten it well. Can you explain what the year to date is 105? So from the baseline was, and that is higher than your baseline right now? The 105? Yeah. But the, 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 the 104, yeah. the, the average yeah. is on the wait list? Yes. Yeah. 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 So that is for, yeah. the, 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 the 52 is for the month of December. Correct. Mm -hmm. And it's on the, the dashboard. Yes. Yeah. 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 So the baseline is when we looked at the 25, sorry, it's not working the computer with this, when we looked at the 2548 and that baseline, it was taking 104 days for someone to come in at, on, on that baseline. Mm -hmm. When we looked uh, at a reduction number, we said we, we, we think we can reduce it to 2293 was our goal. Mm -hmm. And then the goal was to reduce it to 93.6 days. Correct. And so those calculations were what our goals were, and we've surpassed those goals for the month of December. So we've been seeing the decline except for the uptick of the 2016s that were missed for Highland and then we reworked that piece as well as the current work that we're doing for those that are being referred in, in uh, real time. Thank you. Falls. And so falls is uh, has always been something that we looked at and is now um, thanks to the arrival of Tanvir, a very strong system, and Kinsey, uh, uh, a strong look for the system in terms of what we're doing for falls, what interventions we're doing for falls, um, how, what we're learning from the falls, and how we're communicating that information, not only within and in, in, in my environment in one building, but then sharing it with the other buildings to say, are we doing standard work in terms of 
how we assess a room after a fall, how we assess why a resident fell, how we assess the tools and interventions that are care planned, um, are they effective, and then do we need to do something different. Um, in November, we saw a tick to 19, and then in December, we've seen it drop to 11, and so um, the number for December, we were at 1.41, which is below the target number, and I will show you now as a system um, with Tanvir, Kinsey, Gassan, Luis, everyone is looking at this, we are getting a daily falls report. The daily falls report is for all of the sites that you see on the left-hand side, um, and it will tell you um, as a fall occurs, it needs to be entered into the MIDA system. And so the MIDA system is generating the data on a daily basis, and so the teams have 20, the goal is for 24 hours uh, to re-enter what was done as it relates to the fall. I will say the work is done in real time. So if there is a fall, the nursing team, the uh, therapist, psychologist, we contact the pharmacist to look at medication review, all happens in real time. So that work happens right, as a fall, right after a fall has occurred. The 24 hour is for that information of what has occurred to go into the MITA system so that it's shared with the rest of the system. And then as this data comes out, um, we were made aware for any of our sites if that follow-up has not occurred in real time. Is it a typical fall that occurs doing a specific thing? I mean, is it walking down the hallway fall or getting out of bed fall or in the restroom fall? Or what, what? All of the above. Mm -hmm. So it can be it could be a resident who may have some confusion, who has okay. poor safety awareness, who needs assistance to the bathroom, and in the middle of the night may oh. try to go to the bathroom on their own. Uh -huh. We use interventions such as tabs monitors that connect to a pillow and connect to them, and so when they move a certain distance, the alarms start to go off. We, we do low beds for certain residents. If they roll out of bed, they land on a mat. It could be a resident in therapy that may have some weakness after doing some therapy. And then in the post-acute environment, what we see is a lot of the residents who are there for hip fracture, knee replacement, things of that nature, think as they're doing therapy, I can do it now on my own. And they still may not be ready to do it on their own, but they do try. We put in many interventions and let them know, let us know if you need assistance, but at some point, sometimes they believe they can do it on their own. Then we sometimes have what we call frequent falls of a resident who we put in an intervention, try another intervention, try another intervention, and they just continue to fall with all the different interventions we put in place. Mm -hmm. Thank How you. are we doing compared to, uh, compared to national benchmarks? So we are better than national benchmarks. And if you look at this for skilled nursing facility, which is the yeah. bottom blue line, you will see zeros across the entire body for that period. Uh, for December, there were 11 falls. And for uh, up to today, which is the 24th, unfortunately, we had two falls yesterday. We're up to seven. So it's seven. dramatically seven across the, the different sites, oh. mm. which is pretty remarkable when you have you know, over 290-something residents that we're watching on a daily basis. Um, I'll talk about the falls bundle. This, this goes back to the work that Tanvir and the team is doing and implementation. Uh, you know, we assess our residents uh, as they come in on admission to see if they're at risk for falls. It also says reassess because in the post-acute environment, we reassess 
not only if there has been a fall, but we also reassess on a quarterly basis, which is part of the NDS and CMS requirement. We want to make sure that the staff is engaged and that they understand what interventions are in place and that we're enacting on those interventions. So the tabs, monitors, the non-skid socks, the things that we had talked about earlier, that we're monitoring to make sure that those interventions are working. And then the, the blue box indicates if there was actual a fall that it's reported, that it's reported in the MIDA system, that it's reported to the teams, and so that the teams can do further care planning and interventions to see what do they need to do differently that will prevent a fall. Thank you the ER, level two, ETA four and so every morning there's a huddle with the interdisciplinary team where they're reviewing all falls as well. So not only is the fall being reviewed in real time, it's also being reviewed the following morning by the entire team so that di dietary understands what may have happened, that engineering understands what happens, the social services and activities, so that if a resident is leaving a room and going to activities, that activities is also aware of what the interventions are and who's high risk for falls. After the report, we talk to the entire teams during shift-to-shift uh, -shift reports. They share who had a fall, what the new intervention is, and so that from each shift, that information is being translated and that they're sharing what has been learned and what the new intervention is. Just a question. Are all falls treated equal? Not, you know. Are all falls treated equal? What does that mean? <laughs> they're all looked at and addressed equally. Uh, but they may not be, so yes, they are treated equally, but some may require something different. So for example, if we have a patient who has dementia and is on some uh, antipsychotic medications, and we have a resident who is not, the resident that is on those medications will get a referral to the pharmacy to say, are these medications potentially causing a reason for the resident to fall? A resident who is not on those medications wouldn't get a referral because they're not on antipsychotic medications and um, they may not be on a, on a medicine that is at risk for causing a fall. Yeah. So they all are treated equally, but we might have different approaches. Yeah, because I would imagine you have cases where it truly is a, a slip of, you know, something like that, but then there's people who are chronically dizzy or the Correct. medication makes them feel woozy. And, so. and yesterday one of the falls at Fairmont is an alert and oriented resident who ambulates on his own who went in front of the building and his foot slipped and he fell off the sidewalk and that could have happened to me. It wasn't something that necessarily was preventable. He was just ambulating and so. Falls of injury or those ones that have been reported? Every fall is reported. Richard, can you tell us how we came to select our target of 1.78 falls per 1,000 patient days? Uh, so falls in our post-acute environment have been monitored for the last uh, at least five years. And so every year we, we keep bringing it down further and further. And so as the falls get better and better and the falls are the new benchmark, which is better than it was before, becomes our new target, and then we reduced it this year by 20% to say we need to do 20% better than we did last year. So selection was based on a 20% reduction from your Correct. The 1.78, it was 1.98 last year where we ended, and we wanted a 20% reduction. And do you know what national median is? Uh, for, it's just being redone by CMS, and uh -huh. so I can't give you the new figure, but it was running about 4 to 5%. Uh, I mean, uh, but in the similar firm, per 1,000 patient days, how much for as a median for that? Um, 
I'd have to do the calculation. Okay. So for CalNOC, so these are benchmark using CalNOC, which is an indicator. Um, uh, actually, in this setting, this is a compilation of SNP, and so the future is actually not a benchmark. Okay. We benchmarked ourselves, or 20% uh, improved compared to sure. earlier. But on the inpatient side, there are and there are SNF benchmarks nationally, but because ours is a compilation of subacute and SNFs combined. Okay, that's, so that's the, so there's nothing to benchmark right. against. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the challenge is because of the we try to make sure for um, for equanimity, we want to make sure that the benchmark reflects peer groups, and because of the composition of the settings that Richards take care of, we don't have a benchmark for those settings. So, so there might be a little better than other people. So the SNFs, because we can see the amount of SNFs, that we can see the data for each of our SNFs, and so we can benchmark that against, for example, the California Association of Health Facilities that monitors all SNFs, and they can tell us what an average is. The issue becomes that when you mix subacute units, which is where a lot of our CalNOC data is, those residents are mostly ventilator bed-bound residents who are not ambulating. So that percentage is incredibly low versus a SNF where you have a patient who's there for exclusive IV therapies and therapy, PT and OT, and so that they can ambulate and walk. It's a different population. So when you're mixing the two, we want to make sure that we're at least doing better than what we are um, what we have done. Mm -hmm. Our uh, quality metrics also indicate for falls uh, is in the Alameda buildings much better than others. You just see the challenge of our, our benchmark is ourself. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, where we sit in a national context where we get to say we are actually better than other people because I would love for us to be able to say that about it. But I guess Denver, um, I guess you'll help address it. I'd like to look at falls as a never event. Yeah, again, just some of the interventions that we're working on, the non-skid socks, the tab monitors, the movement monitors, reminding residents who are in therapy that if they need assistance to ask for assistance, referrals to pharmacy, uh, referrals to therapy, um, and then the group huddle discussions that we had talked about. Uh, lastly, uh, so it is the flu season, and so in the post-acute environment, if you have one patient who is confirmed for influenza, and you have two patients that have influenza-like illness, which could include that one that has the confirmed case, it's considered an outbreak. Mm -hmm. And what happens is we need to do a daily reporting to the California Department of Public Health, we have to do a daily reporting to the public health office, indicating how many, if any, others have influenza-like illness, which would be a uh, fever, and then one of uh, three other subsets, which could be malaise, runny nose, or throat. Those people get added to the list. Public health, uh, we work very closely with public health, and the rule is you cannot reopen for admissions until you've had four days past your last influenza-like illness. And so in a facility where we have residents initially who are dining together, who are doing activities together, uh, it's difficult that they may have already been exposed. Uh, we put in interventions in terms of infection control issues, the droplet precautions, isolation to rooms and three feet in between beds, and then our PPEs that we use. Um, we do deep cleaning and um, with our environmental services. 
um, so that we can try to get to the point where we're beyond the four-day period. But when you have 118 people in one site and 109 people in another site who may have already dined together or have touched a handrail, um, it's difficult. And so for Fairmont, Fairmont has a little advantage in that it's on different floors. And so you're able to isolate a little bit easier on that. And so their uh, outbreak lasted from the 2nd until the 8th. Parkbridge, because it's one solid environment, uh, was from the 26th of December until the 9th. Uh, so later on when we talk about finances and the finance committee, um, the census did drop because as you're discharging residents, you cannot readmit until you're clear. And so we saw the census drop at both locations, really drop at Parkbridge, but we brought it back up um, to, we're very close to where we normally um, are. Does that eliminate outside visitors as well? We have signs and requirements where we say, um, you know, for someone who may be under 18 years old, we want to say that you may want to stay here because we don't want to have someone who's in school get infected and then they go to school and then now we've potentially caused an outbreak in another location. In terms of loved ones, we want to make sure that they don't have, you know, ILIs, influenza like illness or fever. We ask them if you can come back it's best that you come back, but when you have residents who are on hospice, end of life, we want to make sure that we're not telling a family you can't visit. And so we, we really work case by case. We really talk to our visitors and families and make sure that for safety reasons, if you can come back, we recommend it. But in an, you know, if you're going to see someone who is in that in, uh, end of life, we want to make sure that they're getting that um, visit. Thank Karen Tribble, the CAO of Behavioral Health Services. Very, uh, very pleased to be here. Um, our report, um, I should say, for our behavioral health uh, SBU uh, could have taken a lot of different directions. We're working on a lot of different initiatives, but as you can imagine, there are some key elements that we thought would be of interest. Uh, before we start, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, which are the gentleman joining me, to, to introduce um, two new leaders to our team. Uh, this is Dr. Paisa Malewa, he's our new Director of Nursing, and Dr. Uh, Michael Guania is our interim lead uh, PES, Psychiatric Emergency uh, Physician. So very pleased to have them, and both are very, uh, very connected to some of the initiatives that we're working on, as well as some of the um, avenues. So if there were operational or questions that you wanted to ask, we wanted to make sure uh, both gentlemen could provide some support. Um, to start, it's difficult to read, but we want to focus on our SBU dashboard across the board. Uh, it has already been mentioned, but as you know, uh, one of the many significant um, impacts that uh, behavioral health SBU, particularly John George, is facing is our ligature issue. As, as per the visit in October, October 13th, it's almost the Ides of March uh, for uh, John George in terms of that. Um, we have had a, a, a plethora of things that occur to us. So to give context, because 
um, quite frankly, our scores have been conducted in a variety of ways in terms of our dashboard to those impacts. So I, I think this it has been mentioned before, but in short, as you know, uh, John George, the facility is an older facility, behavioral health facility, and the standards of safety and care for behavioral health across the nation, but particularly recently, has significantly changed. And so ligature points and things like that, literally, are door, door knobs, door handles, the hinges that you even see in this room that are on the doors are ligature points. Any, any object that potentially could be, whether it's a sink in the restroom, whether it's the fixtures that are used in the restroom, potentially the uh, soap, soap dishes that are just very standard in other facilities. So when I say that it is uh, expansive in terms of its impact to John George, uh, that's an understatement and um, in to say the least. But if you look at these areas, you will see sustainability again has been significantly impacted. Um, what we've had to do as a result of our CMS visit, and again, I should say that uh, Dr. Pius joined us in September and uh, Dr. Valania in October, and uh, uh, our Joint Commission visit was in October, so they were welcomed aboard with alacrity. Uh, I believe it was the second day that, uh, the second day for Dr. Valania. Um, but it, during that visit, uh, literally, uh, we were advised in order to ensure that patients remain safe, um, in the areas of uh, the, the ligatures, we had to also initiate immediate one-to-one. -one. And uh, that is different than the typical quote, one-to-one um, uh, -one or sitters. It literally is an arm's length one-to-one. -one. And that was a clear requirement that we were given. And so we have uh, done an enormous amount of staffing and recruitment, bringing registry, including um, we did an initial request of 20 based on their initial um, suggestion in terms of how the facility was to be addressed, and now we are about nine. We have an enormous amount of staff working, as much time is required, quite frankly, and literally on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the day after they left, we had 19 individuals immediately placed on one-to-one by virtue of the criteria that they gave us, so it is significant. So does that, I mean, just to tie to the dashboard, that, that explains the, uh, Expenses for adjusted patient days and the full-time exactly. equivalents. Exactly, because how that, oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, yeah, I just, I assumed that, but then the full-time equivalent actually looks like it, like it looks favorable, it's green. So, so we are doing, uh, we are doing backflips <laughs> to figure out other ways to mitigate that, slowing down hiring, ensuring that any non-required position that we can vote to be filled, we vote. So it's in our budget, we've not yet filled that. So we're literally every day looking at how we can accommodate for these things that we can uh, change. But um, it did dramatically increase your Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. And specifically what that means, um, as you are aware, they, that Alabama Health System initiated the census management plan um, a few years back, which essentially enabled uh, the psychiatric emergency crisis stabilization unit to place a hold on new admissions. Obviously, we've seen a huge dramatic increase in that, which means the direct reduction, which I believe was mentioned earlier in our, in our CSU visits at PES, as well as those able to be admitted on the inpatient unit. Ironically, the inpatient unit is most effective because it, again, includes patient restrooms. And everywhere, whereas our PES is more fishbowl, an open, no-use setting, our inpatient units are patient rooms. So again, we will have to, at some point, and have had to 
limit our inpatient stays depending upon those individuals who are having to be placed on a one-to-one hold. Karen, do you mind explaining just what does the one-to-one look like when a patient has been identified that they're going to need that kind of one-to-one? What 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 does that mean? Um, actually, in our, my, my colleagues. Can... <coughs> yes, uh, one-to-one means uh, that patient has to be on continuous observation. Uh-huh. So we need a staff member to stay with that. Uh, in the room. Yeah. Oh. And previous, even to the bed. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and continuous. Yes. Continuous. It is. And previous to that, again, you know, Q15 or line of sight, that is not acceptable in terms of the way the Joint Commission has interpreted that for us. Thank you. And that, again, if you look at our patient experience metrics, we were slowly having an increase, mm-hmm. as you would expect if you have a person uh, observing you and vulnerable spots I, and I'm in a psychiatric facility that is not very helpful to my treatment mm-hmm. or my experience. So again, all of these are very much interrelated in terms of that. Um, that must make them, they must get sick of them. It's, yes, and, 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 and again, to add to that, our team, our engineering team is doing um, an important amount of changes because of that, right. um, based on those. And uh, what we're looking at is even as we do some construction, we are changing the experience of our patients. Are there any options though? I was just reminded, I, I live in this, uh, this every day, but I'm reminded that again it is nationwide. And to that extension, CHA is initiating a system-wide, nationwide effort to help have conversations with CMS and these implications. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a, a wonderful world we would have been able to order the doors or the things that were requested, but quite frankly, it is being requested by everyone. Mm-hmm. And so back order literally means that we are waiting until those orders are filled. So see, um, that we're, we're, we're definitely wanting to provide feedback on what uh, feedback we receive by Joint Commission and have those conversations preemptively with CMS as a hospital association. So, so, so is there a like construction option that would eliminate the one-to-one requirement by going in? I don't know how you eliminate everything we talked about on that list. But as somebody designed, developed, wonderful question. With an environment that we, we had to do all of that essentially yeah. in the sense of round um, ad nauseum. So we literally took the floor plans and had a team, our, our physician leaders, our nurses, and our engineering, everyone looked at every space and we ranked it high, medium, and low. And what we had to do is then refocus our engineering efforts on those areas. So in particular area, i.e. of PES, if it was the mitigations occurred, we could then take that off the list. So when patients came in that area, we wouldn't have to use staffing to do the one-to-one. So every day we're having to reassess that. Operationally, we can't change the building, but um, it, um, it, it was pretty significant. And we should say also that in our return visit, new things were added. Uh, so we actually changed our phones, our phone cords. So we're trying to be very responsive to some of those uh, additions. Jim, we have a question. Uh, I mean, you really are actually changing the building. You're having, like, I imagine, put pipes behind walls instead of having them out, and, and completely change to a shower new type curtains, of hinge uh, and doorknob. Uh, shower heads, mirrors, uh, uh, are, are you going to, at the end, 
Wow. Whenever you get to the end. Yes. It'd be interesting to see the total cost to the to the facility. Uh, it is. Uh, I will be premature. It is not cheap. Yeah. It is significant. And again, if, if there were time in a perfect scenario, you could have a capital fund and plan over years. Right. But we certainly can't do that because every day we're eliminating inpatients and so forth. Right. But it is again, we're even looking um, at our, our doors, our gates, anything where there are patients. Um, impacts. It is, it is, it, it, and we have, as I mentioned, high, medium, and low, and we have prioritized those things that we know we need to do, but weren't necessarily indicated in this visit that have to be done. But long term, in preparation for where things are going, we'll have to address them. And once all of that is done, you'll be able to not have to do the one-to-one. The one-to-one, that is correct. Uh, there's a clinical tool that we're using, which will come up later in the presentation, that helps us as well get there. And at some point, can we see kind of how much the cost of the staffing versus the cost of doing the, the renovation, the necessary changes? Yes, and in real time, we're looking at that, absolutely, including overtime and other things that staff clinically and appropriately are, will not leave the patient. How much notice Joint Commission give on this? Notice is relative. <laughs> they gave us a heads up, and then they came back in December and gave us another heads up. Uh, we are pleased to say that because of all of the new developments, we were given, uh, it's not an extension, but essentially we are able to now report to them monthly on our progress. And we anticipate, we've given a date, and tried to give ourselves a conservative amount of time to rework, fix, eyeball, recheck. Um, that so on a monthly basis we'll be giving them that so in terms of what we think is we know that they will return and evaluate our progress and hopefully we will not have any other items identified um, that we didn't think of and uh, so I think that by the end of the spring or beginning of the spring excuse me we should be in a different place I would assume there are many facilities that are facing absolutely absolutely uh, we just happen to be um, unique in the Bay Area. Yes. Perhaps a picture will be a, worth a thousand words at the next uh, presentation. Might be helpful to show it before and after, Absolutely. so we can Absolutely. see what you've been working on so Absolutely. much. Thank you. Um, so that being said, these are our, our focus areas. These uh, for this presentation, obviously, our sustainability quality and the patient experience. And as I mentioned, without being redundant, we know that there is an impact. But we're trying to see what things that can be done. Uh, we're very pleased that our uh, food services on their own um, approached us and we're initiating meals and different types of uh, events and things for the patients to help to support that. Um, in terms of sustainability, again, we are on a daily basis looking at particular areas that patients are housed and seeing if can we now clear this area. So those are the things sustainability-wise. And, and we are uh, looking at the, for example, the uh, registry and other people that we brought in when we can discontinue that use in terms of sustainability. Quality, and uh, Dr. Pisces will talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, as you know, in a psychiatric facility, uh, oftentimes, and I think I've mentioned this before, smoking is a way to self-medicate to manage one's own um, uh, experience of mental health challenges often. They, they often go hand in hand. To that end, we have put in a lot of efforts uh, to try to help patients see that as a, a possibility that they potentially can. And that's another metric that we've added, tobacco use and treatment provided because of the overall substance abuse increase that we've also seen. Um, but yeah, we've talked about that before. 
Karen, can you go back to the prior slide, the dashboard slide? Sure. And the, the bottom item is workforce. And there's no there's no data set provided, and I, I, I would agree with this belongs on the dashboard. Can you talk to us about that? I think it's not uh, SPU specific. I okay. think that's a method uh, that okay. AHS is tabulating and getting the right data sets for okay. that. Got it. Although, <laughs> if we cleared our workforce, it's a very challenging time. So of course. <laughs> maybe a blank for them as well. Um, I'll just speak in general again without uh, uh, trying to be redundant. Uh, Richard talked a little bit about some of the similar things. As you look at uh, this rate for inpatient falls, red line being our goal for fiscal year 18, black line being, again, the falls per patient 100 days, just setting kind of the baseline. The blue wiggly line is reporting in terms of what we've seen. Uh, as you note, it started around July 16th, and uh, 16, excuse me, and one thing to note is that, again, as one would expect, for behavioral health patients, uh, we actually, our leadership team, the clinical team, came together and decided actually everyone is a fall risk by virtue of the psychotropic medications that they're on. Almost every medication, it says do not drive, or if you drive, do take these precautions. So we really retooled uh, the way that our physicians and nurses and staff look at patients. Um, as well as, quite frankly, in behavioral health, uh, you might come into a patient's room and they may be laying on the ground by choice, but nevertheless, you'll see uptick where patients are vigilant and really trying to report. So the reconciliation part in behavioral health is extremely important, as well as we've seen double reports. Um, and there was a question earlier about what type of falls for behavioral health we may have anything. We may have an individual who, again, puts themselves in for, may fall out of the bed, may just run very quickly, um, and so there's some efforts that, again, Dr. Pasper talked about that we've tried to change. But in, in general, we are seeing a decline, and we're trying to continue with that trend and uh, move forward with that. Uh, I will repeat, this is the, essentially a similar dashboard and that was reported as well. And you'll see for that particular week, uh, Behavioral Health had one um, on fall on one of its units. Again, we're all using now this model of reassessing and evaluating. And as I said, what's really important is that for behavioral health, we have tried different ways to uh, focus on this. One of the challenges that we have in, in comparison to an acute or a, a setting where there's medical services being provided is that for behavioral health, again, privacy and confidentiality is critical. So putting on a, a sign on someone's door, fall risk, or just a color, provides its own set of challenges in terms of how the patients see that and view that. So we've been trying a lot of, and considering other things that we can do for those patients that are ambulating um, in terms of that. So for us, it's the monitoring is happening on a daily basis. What's not a, a intrusive, what is not frightening, or quite frankly, uh, eliciting paranoia to our patients, and how can we help help them? Uh, Paul, uh, this would be separate. It would be, um, it would be patient-to-patient -patient interaction, but. But could falls actually include patient-to-patient um, -patient, uh, push or? Uh, it could. Yeah. If, if a patient says another patient and the patient falls down, it can. you say fall. Right. Which would have a little bit of a different type of response. Or yeah. Absolutely. And for us, then we have two reporting streams in terms of right. the, the assault portion and, and as well as the, and that's why for the behavior health, the reconciliation is, is often a little complex to tease that out. Mm -hmm. um, I will uh, defer now to Dr. Uh, 
uh, Pius to talk a little bit more specifically about some of the inventions. Well, good afternoon to members. Um, before reduction, we've taken a lot of steps to make sure that um, our fall reduces uh, drastically. And even though we are not where we want to be right now, we are no longer where we used to be. So but we still have a lot of rooms for improvement. And we're working with all core members to make sure that we can put all those things together to make sure that we can actually push for a zero fall. That is our goal. So we're doing a lot of things to make sure that um, no patient falls actually occurs. So part of that is continuous assessment of our patients, which we do uh, every shift uh, from one shift to another. And then we're doing the, uh, the running audits. So that actually involves you know, a Q15 minutes check and making sure that we know what every patient is doing at every, every time. So we also implemented, or it has been implemented, making sure that we're using the, the more scale, you know, assessing the possibility that a patient can fall. So the higher the numbers, we know, okay, this is a red flag. Uh, we have to uh, do uh, action plan to make sure that that patient doesn't fall. Uh, right now, all our patients are being classified as four risk because of the psychotropic medications, you know. They're taking an Adivan, you know, depot code and all sort of things. So that has become, you know, very important to us. And we push for increased use of uh, double-sided, non-skill socks. Um, because some, sometimes our patients just take off their socks, you know, for no apparent reason, they don't want it. Uh, they turn it upside down or, you know, in and out. So we try as much as, as possible to emphasize that. Uh, we continue to prompt our patients that, okay, they can fall. Even despite that, you know, being the kind of population we deal with, you know, sometimes we're telling them, oh, you may fall, but they don't want to listen. They still want to do what they want to do, freedom. So that we're doing everything we can do to make sure that we are very consistent. Uh, we implemented the post fall debrief tool, uh, which is very important to know why a fall actually occurs and what we could have done differently to prevent that. So with that, um, we also continue to push, you know, fall awareness to every staff uh, during huddles and during a shift change. So it's not the mantra that everybody sings. So fall is the number one thing on our units, on our, in our department as far as we are concerned. Why is this a yellow armband? What's that all about? Well, the yellow armband is just to indicate that, you know, it's a visual aid to tell anyone that, okay, please pay more attention to that individual. So it's a visual aid to say, okay, this is potential for patient. Yeah. And those are the case-by-case case things that we're looking at because right. some patients may not want that right. band. They mm -hmm. think it means something that it may not. So yeah. we're trying to be creative. No, I know. Thank you. <laughs> um, this again, uh, just to run through briefly, as we mentioned, that we have a the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale (CSRS). That was the tool that Joy Commission also recommended that we immediately implement and train 100% of our clinical staff, which has been completed. 
Um, it has been extremely helpful because immediately when a person presents potentially for a risk of self-harm, they will IE score literally very basic, high, medium, and low. Um, depending on how they score and often the type of reassessment that occurs, then they will be placed on that one-to-one -one status. And so it is very fluid because it may change by virtue of presentation, something that's said to a physician, so it is constantly being happening. And um, we are, at this point, if you'll note the last one, our goal it has already been implemented at Highland as well. Uh, we anticipated we would have a little more time, so we started at Highland actually, and we quickly blended it at John George, and we were trying to roll out the use of that tool, because it is a very, very uh, important tool that uses um, standard language and is evidence-based that can help categorize the risk for patients so that facilities essentially can speak the same language, mm -hmm. even in transfer. Uh, the other uh, piece I will definitely defer to um, uh, Dr. Villani, but I think the context that I will say is that we one metric that we are also looking at is, as you know, John George is not particular, it is not a medical facility as such, although it is connected to Highlands license. So what we are doing, obviously, is now really reinvigorating how we then, when patients don't, um, for whatever reason, cannot remain with John George, they have a medical condition which requires immediate treatment or transfer elsewhere, we are trying to help to communicate the medical pieces that are important to know. As you know, our, our, our folks have a specialty of behavioral health, so we are now trying to help with documentation of information that a medical provider or others can actually receive that would make sure that we are speaking to our entire um, relationships as, as, as it were. I don't have too much to add uh, that we did find you know, two main areas of improvement in terms of uh, you know, being consistent with uh, compliant with uh, EMTALA regulations. One was making sure that we were consistent in documenting that every patient that's seen by the triage physician at John George has a medical screening, ex screening exam. All the patients that are seen by the triage doctor do have a medical screening exam, but we identified uh, areas for improvement in the actual documentation. We're actually going into our EHR and changing the template for our triage physicians so that it's consistent each time uh, and consistent with EMTALA. Uh, and two, the other part was making sure that we consistently document um, that we are uh, filling out the interfacility transfer forms, documenting uh, the physician that the triage doctor has spoke with on the other end uh, from the emergency room, as well as documenting the risks, benefits, alternatives to transport for transport with the patient, uh, and uh, making sure that our nursing staff uh, consistently uh, obtains consent from the patient, and if they are unable or unwilling to sign the consent form, documenting a reason why. So it's really uh, you know, changing our standard workflow uh, so that we are, are compliant with EMTALA. And I, I, I want to underscore, um, uh, Dr. Mendes, very humble. There was a lot of retraining because in the behavioral health world, MSE means mental status exam. Medical work, MSE means um, medical screening exam. So, literally, there was not a lack of awareness, but it was just an intentionality. So, we, the, the documentation of very thorough MSEs for behavioral health, but there really was retraining. And on the piece on training, we also uh, just uh, you know, launched uh, an e learning module for all of our staff, uh, I think the nursing and uh, physician staff. Uh, so that we can you know, have, have evidence that we're, we're actually training our folks on uh, uh, EMTALA. 
Teresa, you have um, a question? My question is about MTAL and the medical screening that you just brought up. And, and I, I wonder um, the extent to which patients are, are transported to John George through a 5150, perhaps, and it, it turns out the medical screening determines that it was a stroke or a neurological event or a addiction or something that's not, that would be treatable. Is that patient, um, I mean, we have procedures in place, I'm sure, to transport that patient back to um, San Juan or Alameda or, or um, Highland, but could it be the case that during the screening or, or prior to transport, it, the situation could be resolved and, and that would be an EMTALA issue if prior to the patient or the, the transport team getting to John George and there was a, a consult or a, um, a teleconsult, which we're doing more often, I guess, or that the patient might not be transported? So if, so if I understand your uh, question correctly, are, are you saying, uh, are, are you wondering about whether a 5150 is dropped prior to the patient being uh, transported to a medical review? Well, it, it, if a 5150 would be dropped because the, the patient was not, um, it was not a psychiatric condition, and, and so the 5150 was dropped, but then there was still an EMTALA a need for admittance or a need to be seen in an ER, so there could be an EMTALA violation. Does that I think the way that we look at it, because EMS typically, in those cases, are doing the field screening. Right. So the presumption is they've done a basic layer, and then our, our responsibility, because we're then operating under the license of uh, Highland as an, as an ER, which again is a, is a different identity in terms of John George, is that we are affirming that this person also has a 5150 or psychiatric issue, and that the acute needs for medical can, um, cannot be managed here, it's not appropriate. And so it literally may mean then that person is transported to, uh, we don't dictate, but wherever the appropriate medical facility is, and then they are able to, once that's uh, addressed, uh, return back to John George uh, for the appropriate behavioral health intervention. Yeah. Well, I guess, but my question is more, if, if the patient did not end up having a psychiatric condition that would necessitate admittance to whether immediate or, or eventual admittance to John George, it, whether it was determined that it was a, some other um, or some other non-psychiatric condition that was causing, that, that had made the, the 5150, had established the 5150. Is there a standard or procedure that automatically that once the neurological that is recognized and it's not a 5150, then it's... That's a good question. So there's no retroactive, I'm sorry, there's no retroactive undoing of, of EMTALA. And right. In essence, right. it says that so even if that issue was resolved prior to arriving at the door, the EMTALA piece comes in that we then have to assess and establish that, as you said. So regardless of why they come in, and we do have patients that present, not, you know, can have a sandwich. We still have to register and do our due diligence to establish that. So even if the disputation changes, the responsibility is on us to right. document, mm -hmm. no matter what. I knew that the responsibility was there, but I just, I, I wanted to kind of figure out, I was trying to... How does yeah, it I just want to explain that um, once the triaging is done and the MSC is done, then there's no violation of EMTALA because okay. the physician actually have, they have the, based on their clinical judgment, 
they can discontinue fifty-one-fifty at any time based on their clinical assessment of the patient. But once the triaging is done and the MAC is done as well, and there's evidence of you know interfacility transfer well documented, then there's no violation of MTALA. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for figuring out what my question was. <laughs> 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 we aim to be supportive of the patient. Right. Um, so, again, those, are our, uh, those were our major areas, and as I mentioned before, SBU is working on a lot of areas, including crime and outpatient, but obviously that's consuming a lot of energy that we really want to focus on. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are out of time, uh, and I think the only item left on the agenda is our legal counsel's report of the closed session. Yeah, so the committee met a closed session and considered the credential reports for each of the three medical staffs uh, and approved credential privileges for the fully qualified providers recommended by the medical staffs and took no other action. All right. I'll enter a motion to adjourn. So moved. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. We're adjourned. Thank you.